we're going to study the first nine chapters. The first nine chapters are specifically designed by Solomon to give principles of leadership and principles to understand to his young son Rehoboam who would one day occupy the throne. Now, if you read in 1 Kings chapter 11, then you know that Rehoboam did not do too well in applying these principles. And yet God in his perfect sovereign providential wisdom preserved these principles where Solomon was passing on this wisdom to his son for us to hopefully listen to and not end up in the same place that Rehoboam did. Well, tonight we come to the last, actually the penultimate part of this this, uh, uh, admonition that he's given his son. And we told you at the beginning, this will get recycled and repetitive on purpose. And so we have to finish verse 22 to the end of the chapter tonight. And then we're gonna do in two weeks, all of chapter nine, because it's one unit as well. Let me read this for you. Proverbs chapter eight, verse 22. And I want you to listen specifically for how Solomon leverages our understanding of the creation, our belief in a literal six-day creation to understand how we're supposed to think and act differently because of that. And also the credibility that wisdom has because it was there with God during the creation. Proverbs chapter eight, follow along as I begin reading in verse 22. The Lord possessed me, this is wisdom speaking. God gives wisdom as a principle of voice, as a virtue. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way before his works of old. From everlasting I was established. From the beginning, from the earliest of times of the earth, When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While he had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the first dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he ascribed a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, When he set out for the sea its boundary so that the water would not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was beside him as a master workman and I was daily his delight. Rejoicing always before him. Rejoicing in the world, his earth. And having my delight in the sons of men. Now therefore, O sons, or because of this. Listen to me, for blessed are they who keep my ways, heed instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at my doorposts. For he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me injures himself. All those who hate me love death. I was quite surprised to discover that the Vatican has an astronomer. His name is Brother Guy. I'm going to try this. Consolmagno. 
He works at the Vatican Observatory in Arizona. He's a curator of the Vatican Meteorite Collection. I was also surprised to know that the Vatican had a meteorite collection. (laughs) But he doesn't believe, Brother Guy, let's just call him Brother Guy, he doesn't believe that science and religion are competing theories, that they can come together without any contradictory rub with each other. Not long ago, he commented that, quote, a literal creationism, strictly that God created the world in six days, is a kind of paganism. Because it harkens back to the days of nature gods who were responsible for natural events. He goes on to say, quote, knowledge is dangerous, but so is ignorance. That's why science and religion need to talk to each other. He continues, religion needs science to keep it away from superstition and keep it close to reality, to protect it from creationism, which at the end of the day is a kind of paganism. It's a turning of God into a nature God. And science needs religion in order to have a conscience, to know that just because something is possible, it may not be a good thing to do, end quote. Now, what's troubling to me about Brother Guy is the astronomer who collects and curates the meteorite collection at the Vatican, is that he says to believe in a six-day literal creation is to believe in a nature God. Now, I know what he means talking about pagan gods, but we have a, a God of nature. We have a God who created nature. There are only three options for your belief regarding the creator and creation. First, there's materialistic evolution, which means that nobody, think about this, nobody plus nothing equals everything. Can you do that calculus? Nobody plus nothing equals everything. That's materialistic evolution. No one can explain where it came from or why it happened the way it is, why there's order or teleos. A second option is theistic evolution. This has gained a lot of traction in recent years. That God started the evolutionary process and he enters into it at certain points. Hugh Ross being one of the proponents of that. And third is divine creation. That's the third option. God made the universe just like Genesis 1 and 2 says. Why is there such a pushback against God being the creator and creating the world just as Genesis 1 and 2 says? Well, it's really simple. If there is a creator who created everything, including you and me, then there is a moral obligation to obey and honor this creator. That's exactly why Ecclesiastes 12.1 says, remember your, he doesn't say God, he doesn't say Yahweh, Elohim, Adonai. He says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. In other words, the paradigm of understanding growth in God and growth in godliness from the youngest of ages on is to remember that God is the creator. He made the creation and we owe our lives to him because he owns us as the creator. God gives us life and breath, as Acts chapter 17 says, and we owe him our very existence. Evolution, I think, is perhaps the most elaborate and well-received lie that Satan has ever invented in his illustrious career. Nobody plus nothing 
equals everything and people buy it. People believe that. Job learned the deep and penetrating lesson that one of the most significant differences between himself and God as he was wrestling through his trials and the speeches and the arguments with his friends who were coming to try to sort out his suffering, the most significant thing he found out about himself and God was that God understood the mysteries of creation and he did not. God was there with angels and Job was not He knew every nuance about the creation. He was responsible for it. And it's not an overstatement to say that there is no discovery, I think, more sought out on this planet by intellectuals and by scientists, by philosophers, than to figure out the way the earth and the universe came into being. Now, maybe, uh, I'm not sure if it's wrong or not, but I, I just enjoy watching the Discovery Channel and the History Channel and the whatever channel that tells me about the way the world came into existence and all of these theories and you see these illustrations really well done on these blobs that split and and they said, this is what happened. And, And the question you always have to ask is, how do you know that? How do you know that happened that way? That very question, how do you know, is at the heart of this passage. Because wisdom as an abstract principle and virtue of God is personified and set right beside the Holy Trinity in the act of creation as a witness to the creative act. And that's important because the credibility for wisdom's authority comes from the fact that it it resided in God as he created the universe. To know how the creation came into being, to understand the origins of the universe, to have been an eyewitness, this would certainly provide the credibility needed to be listened to. Remember, this whole chapter is intended as an argument for listening to wisdom against folly. Look at the very end of this, of the passage. Verse 35, he who finds me, wisdom, finds life obtains favor from the Lord, but he who sins against me injures himself. And all those who hate wisdom, hate me, love death. Now, this passage we're gonna go through pretty quickly. It's stitched together very tight. It speaks of creation as punctual events, not an evolutionary process. One of the things that I've, I've had multiple discussions and and debates with friends who believe in theistic theistic evolution is regarding this issue of, of evolution, the evolutionary process. Were they punctual events? And can I just make this as simple as, as maybe you could take down to the four or five year old Sunday school class? God in his infinite wisdom, in his divine revelation, in recording his word, when Moses recorded the creation account, remember, Moses wasn't there either. So for Moses to write Genesis 1 and 2, he had to get that from someplace? Where did Moses get that data? Well, he was up on the mountain for 40 days at least twice. I don't think they were having tea parties. I think he was probably saying, Moses, I want to tell you about the creation. Here's what happened on day one. Moses is taking notes. 
They too, Moses is taking notes. That's where he, Moses got it. He got it directly from God. They were, were punctual events. But if you want going out of the fourth, four-year-old, the fourth grade Sunday school class, and you're explaining this, just think about it this way. If you were to read Genesis 1 and 2 at face value, you would think that there were six literal days of creation and a day seven were with rest. It takes extra work and hard interpretation to make it say something else. You know, look, nobody becomes a liberal by reading the Bible. You have to go to school to learn how to become a liberal. Someone has to teach you the Bible doesn't mean what it says. That's what liberalism does. If God wanted to say, I've taken multiple years of Hebrew. I know the language enough to tell you this. If God wanted to say he created the world over multiple ages and epochs, there's plenty of Hebrew language for him to say that clearly. But the perspicuity or the clarity of Scripture demands that God sure seems to intend for us to read Genesis 1 and 2 and take it at face value. And so did Solomon, and so did Paul, and so did Jesus. Because wisdom was there with God before anything else, it accompanied him at creation. Wisdom should be chosen above everything else as the governing principle of life. That's Solomon's point in these verses. So let's, let's tackle, it together, tackle it together. We'll find then, looking at Solomon's argument, three credentials for wisdom's authority. Why should we believe in wisdom, God's wisdom, over our own intuition? And we've said all along, all of us who've taught has said the, 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 the goal and the, the theme of Proverbs is to become wise enough to know you're not wise enough. Think about that. Wise enough to know you're not wise enough. The humility to be teachable, to learn, to put yourself under the wisdom of God and the submission to his word. That's wisdom. It's being teachable. So let's break this down. Three credentials for wisdom's authority and we'll, we'll, be, we'll have a more extended outline tonight to track the argument. First of all, her existence before the creation. The reason it's her is throughout this chapter, wisdom is put in the feminine. She, as a great mother who's giving us her wisdom. Her existence before the creation in verses 22 to 26. Let's break that down even further. Looking at wisdom's antiquity. How old is wisdom? Wisdom's antiquity. Verse 22, the Lord possessed me, wisdom is speaking, the, the, the Lord held me, possessed me, owned me at the beginning of his way, the very beginning of Genesis 1.1. Before his works of old, that's the creation. From everlasting before the creation, I was there, I was established, I existed from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. Now this section, particularly this verse, is the subject of much debate. And the question, if you read the commentaries on this, on this, is whether or not this lady wisdom is really a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ. Now you say, wait a minute, that's, that's a little weird. Where do you get that? Well, because Colossians 2 says Jesus is the personification and the incarnation of wisdom. Therefore, before he uh, uh, took on flesh... Part of the Godhead, the, the, uh, the person of the Godhead, rather, who was speaking as wisdom, it's likely Christ. 
You know, maybe, maybe yes, maybe no. I don't think that's the point, even though people are debating this very heavily in the commentaries. I think the the issue is God is wisdom. God possesses wisdom. God is using wisdom. And it is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit who are attending the creation and wisdom is attending them. The context gives us balance here. Solomon's point is for us to understand that wisdom has credibility to be the operating principle in our lives because it has such antiquity. It's been around for so long. If you live aware enough and long enough, you will come to the point where you'll see things begin to cycle. The, the, the same arguments kind of come around. I mean, for example, theological liberalism uh, came and said that um, uh, in, order to be, in order to be accepted, you need to be accepted by the academy. So in the 1920s, it pushed fundamentalism into its own category because primarily it believed the creation and said, that's ridiculous, we know better. And so in order to be accepted in the eyes of society, it wanted to be academically credible. Well, fast forward to um, our generation and in order to be credible in the eyes of the society of culture, it's now to be cool and hip and to doubt what God says. Liberalism just is the same ideas just in different clothes. Every generation, it kind of reformulates itself. God's point here is wisdom is consistent and old and never changes, can be trusted. I like how John Kitchen assesses this debate. He says, rather than being drawn into debates about identifying wisdom with Jesus Christ, we ought to behold the wonder of God's wisdom. We ought to contemplate the intrinsic need for wisdom. If we are to reside in harmony with God in his creation, we ought to hunger and thirst to possess wisdom or perhaps better, to be possessed by this wisdom of God. This is another way of saying wisdom is old and typically categorized as old-fashioned and its principles and its virtues from another bygone generation. And that's what we hold on to. Morality seems to continue to knock on our door and say, do what's expedient, do what you feel, do what everyone else is doing because to act like A virtuous person is to be old-fashioned. Solomon gets ahead of that and says, yeah, it's old-fashioned, all the way back to the creation. And those principles stay consistent throughout eternity. Secondly, let's look at wisdom's priority in verses 24 to 26. Wisdom's priority. When there were no depths, now we're going way back before the actual substance of the earth is being formed. No depths, I was brought forth. I was born. I was first expressed. When there were no springs abounding with water, a lot of creation attention is given to fresh and salt water in Genesis 1. When there were no springs abounding with water, I was there. Before the mountains were settled, this is before the third day of creation with land, dry land. Before the hills were brought forth, third day. While he had not yet made the earth and the fields nor the the first dust of the world. In other words, he's being specific. And listen, this doesn't make sense unless these are real punctual days. Solomon 
certainly believed in a six-day literal creation. What's summarized in verse 22 is now expanded and developed all the way down through verse 31. Wisdom predates the third day of creation. It's described in Genesis 1-2 as the earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. The Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. God says, wisdom was with me then. The operating moral principles of how to live life in the creation were present while creation was actually being formed. The most important point here is the not so subtle reference to wisdom's existence before man, which happens here in verse 26. While yet he had not made the earth and the fields, nor the first dust of the ground from which man was taken, wisdom existed. So one of the things that's important in this passage is to remember that God's Operating principles of virtue, what's right, what's wrong, what's best, even over what's good. Those principles are not, they're not contextually derived. They actually go all the way back and were a part of the principles by which God actually created the world. Let's look at a second credential for wisdom's authority, her existence before the creation. Number two, her presence at the creation. Her presence when the creation was unfolding, at the creation. Let's break this down. Looking first at wisdom's witness of the creation, verse 27. When God, when he established the heavens, I was there. Remember, this is wisdom. Lady wisdom is talking. When God established the heavens, when he made the stars and the moon and the sun, I was there. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, when he made the earth a round orbis in the heavens with a a circular motion that would go around the sun, I, I was there. I saw it. Wisdom was present to witness the creation of the world when God was creating planets and moons and asteroids and comets and solar systems and galaxies and all forms of gravitational pulls. Wisdom was there watching, operating. When God was designing and creating electromagnetic radiation and the whole spectrum of radio waves to gamma rays, wisdom was present. As God first took the earth, think about this, on the first day and spun it. Spun it on an axis that would tilt back and forth 365 days, giving perfect balance. Wisdom was there as an operating principle. Verse 28. When he made firm the skies above. In other words, he separated and ordered the atmosphere, the layers of atmosphere. When the springs of the deep became fixed, they stopped spewing and spouting and lakes were formed. Fresh water, salt water. When he set uh, for the sea its boundaries so that the water would not transgress his command, violate his commands. When he marked out the foundations of the earth. This is interesting to think about. God operated like a surgeon on this watery mass and gave land 
and see boundaries, shape, and form. Wisdom was there as the operating principle. On the first three days of creation, God took this formless earth, formed it into an environment that was perfectly suited for human habitation. Oh, the animals too, but it was given to man first. The formless became formed and the void became filled. It was formless and void and it became formed and filled. And he did it with wisdom on the front row. This has a moral implication. Just hang on for it. Also, look at wisdom's work in the creation. Secondly, wisdom's work in the creation. Wisdom speaking, then I was beside him as a master workman. I love that little phrase, as a master workman. The Hebrew is interesting. It means a, a wonderfully curious curator, a master workman. What he did was unlike anything anyone had ever done, skillfully done. And I was daily his delight. God was delighting in his wisdom. He was doing it for purpose and reason. Rejoicing always before him. This was a happy occasion. Wisdom is a happy virtue. Rejoicing in the world, his earth, having my delight in the sons of men. The, the crowning jewel of the creation was Adam, Eve, the sons of men. Solomon has already given us this in concept back in chapter 3, verse 19. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth by understanding. He established the heavens. But here we see that wisdom was not only at work at the creation, but involved as a workman with God. God's attribute of wisdom was the operative principle, the instrument by which he created the universe. He did everything wisely, purposefully, for good reason, with moral implications, as we'll see in a moment. And all of this leads to wisdom, God's chief delight, being the formation of the sons of men. Psalm 139 says, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. You ever stop to think that God takes particular delight in the way that you're made. We were talking this morning about the, the almost countless varieties of male and female cells that could have come together in your parents to make you. And yet God brought those two specific cells together to make one and that's you. The wisdom. He made you. He made some of us of shorter stature than others. He made some with beautiful voices and some he made like me. But all for his own glory. This is a kind of a theological practical aside. He takes delight because of his wisdom to have made you. When you look in the mirror, when you think of yourself you don't find self-esteem from, from self-glorification, but you find wonder and glory in the fact that God made you like you and he made no one else like you. Glorify God with you-ness, the uniqueness of who you are. 
Wisdom was present at the creation. That should give credibility to listen to it. This will all climax in just a moment. A third credential for wisdom's authority, her existence before the creation, her presence at the creation, and here's where we're going, her, number three, guidance for the creation. Her guidance for God's creation. Now, therefore, verse 32, we look at the, first of all, wisdom's invitation to to blessing. Wisdom's invitation to blessing. Verse 32. Now, therefore, O sons. He, He stops talking about the sons of men and starts talking to the sons of men. Now, therefore, O sons of men, listen to me. Who's the me? Wisdom. For blessed are they who keep my ways. Heed instruction and be wise. Does that not sound like what we've been saying throughout Proverbs over and over and over and over and over and over again? Heed instruction and be wise. Do not neglect it. Verse 34, blessed is the man Happy is the man, fulfilled and satisfied is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at my doorposts. For he finds me, he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. This is all review, but the, the, um, the, the picture here is really interesting. It's, it's of, of someone waiting on someone. Uh, my favorite, I think, memory of being a dad, and I really mean this, the one that when I look back at when, when the boys were young, I, I treasure as much as any other memory was arriving at home after a long day of work. I would open the garage door, which could be heard because it was a really needing to be repaired garage door <laughs> and it rattled the whole house. And as the garage door would come up, I could see the door open and three little boys waiting at the door for dad. Excited and anticipating. That's the picture here, waiting at the gates. We should be longing for a long expected blessing, a friend, a loved one, a spouse, a child, watching at the gates, waiting at the doorposts. This phrase, listen to me, is in chapter one, verse eight, chapter four, verse one, chapter four, verse 10, over and over, listen to me, listen, listen to me. You know, we're coming up close. In two weeks, we should finish our study of Proverbs and there's a sense in which I wish we could just start over because I don't think I have listened well enough. Verse 35, favor and delight and pleasure. He who finds me finds life. The abundant life, the way to bring real, lasting meaning and satisfaction is when we operate by, by wisdom. Now we come to what does this really mean? And the last little point in our outline is wisdom's warning of cursing. This is a strong warning, it's a very strong warning. He who sins against me, literally it's he who misses my mark. He who 
doesn't land on me, walks right past me. He who sins against me injures himself. And all those who hate me love death. Everything we've said so far about the, the creation, uh, wisdom being there, it's kind of theoretical, it's sweet, it's artistic, it's beautiful, it's wonderful. But now we come down to the moral implication. If wisdom is from God, which tells us what's right and wrong, what's better, what's wise, what's unwise. If we, if we know that, and we know that from God's word as he's recorded it, and yet we do not listen or even worse, we sin against it. We miss it. The, the, the translation sin against really is ignore it. We, we, we miss it. We walk right past it. If we set it aside, if we miss it, this is a strange construction. We injure ourselves. You injure yourself. All of us know what it's like to injure ourselves. Almost every home project that I do, you're already laughing, stop. Almost every home project I do includes at least six trips to Home Depot and one trip to the emergency room, it feels like. Um, I, uh, I just, uh, I injure myself. I'm, I'm very good at hurting myself. I'm not like, you know, a Ben Brown or, or Justin Muldrup who have these wonderful works of wood and I'm jealous and trying not to sin when I think about that, but I just mess everything up. And when I say I mess everything up, I can't hang a picture right. Um, I'm really good at hanging pictures wrong. I mean, if you want one hung off-center, if you want like of an art, a little bit of an artsy off-center, you, I'm your guy. You just call me. I can help you at, at, at every, every bit. My, my sons are, are telling me, Dad, you know, you're holding the, the drill wrong. And um, it's, it's, it's humbling. Um, when you miss something and injure yourself, though, you know it immediately. Here's the great fear of this passage is when you become injured and you don't know it. If you don't sense the injury of this lack and wi- missing of wisdom, We've missed the whole point of these eight chapters of Proverbs. All those who hate me love death. Pretty strong. So let's kind of bring that to a moral dimension. What is he saying? He's saying God operated, God organized, God orchestrated the creation of the world by the operative principle of his wisdom. He wants us to be wise with him and wise from him. So the way we do that is we apply biblical principles the Hebrew word is hokmah, uh, a skill, a skill of understanding life to say that's right and that's wrong. Frankly, that's the easy part. Murder is wrong. Adultery is wrong. Lying is wrong. The right and wrongness is the easy part. The difficult part is the better and the best. How do we know the better and the best? How do we know what, what should we do well, that's what these, 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 this passage is about. We seek God. We listen to his word. We collate passages. We find wise men and women who can pour into our life, who have experience. That's what the body of Christ is for, is the pooling of wisdom. 
it might not be an exaggeration or an overstatement to say, none of us ought to make any major life decision without good godly counsel from someone in the body of Christ. Don't trust yourself. Major moves, major pur- purchases, uh, major decisions with, 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 with children. I, I can't tell you the amount of times when, when our sons were younger and when they were older, we would call someone who'd, who was further down the track in parenting than us and say, we're, we're at a loss here. We're a, we're a loggerheads. We don't know what to do. Help us. So wisdom comes down to being able to discern what's sin and what's righteous, what's right and what's wrong, and also what's the best choice among all choices. And here's the good news. If you make an unwise or not the wisest choice, we have a gracious God who most of the time, unless the decisions are irreversible, gives us a a mulligan. (laughs) Says, we're gonna retry that. In fact, I've, I've found that if I fail tests that God gives me, he's very faithful to repeat those tests. Have you found that? Said, well, you, you blew it that time. You're gonna, have to, you're gonna have to retake that class. God formed this entire universe by wisdom with order, with, with, we call this the teleological argument for the existence of God. Everything he does has a purpose, has order. It doesn't make sense without God orchestrating and holding it together. That wisdom gives us access to the divine mind to know what's right and wrong and what's best and what's What's better? What's good and what's best? 